Hey, hey. How are y'all? Good? Okay. Yeah. Well. Hi, Nathan. Um, so, y'all know we're going over tonight, right? Y'all do. Y'all are all aware. Yeah, okay. Did anybody not have any idea what we were doing tonight and just came in? We No. Well, for like one minute. Um, okay, so I've shied away from really any deep study of the book of Revelation because I, don't, I just don't know how to approach it. Like, I just never knew how to approach it. Uh, I think b- given the culture that we're in, the, 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 when I say the culture, I, I really mean historically speaking, uh, we, we came on the heels of right, the Left Behind series and this big infatuation with the end times. Uh, like even all these movies that came out, especially when I was young, there was like, um, oh, what was that one that had like the Aerosmith song that went along with it? Armageddon, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it sort of like, kept, the kept, kept, movies kept coming out about the end of the world and what that was going to be like. And then the Arnold Schwarzenegger one, uh, no, 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 no. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's one about the end of the world, sort of. But the other one that was more like, expressly about like Christian stuff. End of days. Do you remember that? Right? Like Arnold Schwarzenegger's like in the church and there's the cross and he's asking help dealing with the demons and stuff. Um, anyway, anyway. So it, it, I, I never knew how to approach this book and I felt like every time that I did I would start reading and I was trying to decode what was going to happen in the future. Um, and, and the Left Behind series was really kind of uh, formative I never read it, but my parents played it in cassette in the car when we would drive around. And so, like, several times I remember being really young and coming in the house, and my parents were in the back of the house, but I didn't know that. And, like, I'd come in, and no one would be there, and I'd be like, hello, hello. Oh, this is it. Like, I've been left behind. I better figure out what to do now, you know? And so I'd run through the house, and then they'd be there, you know? Uh, I don't know what I would have done. Um, that would have been devastating. Anyway, uh, so I would always approach this book as if it were, and, and there's a, there is a theological position that does this, and I'm not trying to knock that at all, um, but I would approach it as if this book is predominantly a coded message regarding seven years of time that will be at some point in the future that we don't know about. And it would be these seven years of this rapture that takes everyone away, great tribulation on the earth, some terrible things happen, the Antichrist comes, he gets shot in the head and then comes back to life, and then, uh, and, you know, and Jesus returns. And that the, the whole book is a coded message regarding these seven years. Uh, and so I would always approach it and try to start decoding and get lost and get angry, and then I would leave the book. And so I've always wrestled, well, what, what do I, how do I understand this book? And so the more I've tried to take a step back and look at the entirety of this book, Joe did a great job of setting the stage last week, and I really appreciate the way he did that. Um, and we had to talk to make sure we were going to come from at least a similar place. So, what I want us to remember is the book is called The Revelation to John. And so when we say that word, the revelation, what we're really trying to understand is this, is that John got a, a, a snapshot. He got sort of a, 
a view into something that we don't get to see every day, but we interact with every day. So when it says the revelation, it more means the revealing to a, a, a reality that we interact with and yet we don't really see. Uh, and, and so what you're going to see in this book is it's not a linear development. It is a snapshot from different angles about different power struggles that are going on in the world today, uh, 2,000 years ago, and will be going on in the future. There's a snapshot of this going on. There's a struggle going on. And so if I'm going to just lay it out, I, wanna, I want us to remember a couple things. Let's remember that the Bible is about this idea. The Bible is about not that you have sinned, Jesus came and died on a cross, so you can go to heaven when you die. Let's remember that is not what the Bible is about. Even though there are pieces of that in the Bible, the Bible is predominantly about the creation of the world, its goodness, then the placing of humans in creation to be those beings that interact with the Creator, interact with the spiritual realm, and interact with the physical realm, and thereby bring the will of God, the kingdom of God, and the spiritual reign to the earth. So we are this linchpin that governs the direction of the world. And very early on, we walk away from our relationship to God and the earth itself is not subject then to the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. It is then subject to fallen man who has fallen according to the lies of a snake, but then we see later on is actually Satan. Okay, so we've got to understand that this is the narrative that's playing out in Scripture, is the loss of creation because of the fall of humans. The creation itself is lost. And this is why Jesus says in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Presupposing that the will of God is not done on the earth as it's done in heaven, even though God is sovereign and has the ability to do whatever he wants. Why is that the case that he doesn't have rule on the earth if he can do whatever he wants? Well, when he was doing whatever he wanted to do, he decided to put humans as the linchpin between heaven and earth. When humans fell the earth was corrupted. We've talked about this over and over and over and over. Romans 8, um, every single time I talk about Genesis, which is nearly every time. All right, so this is the narrative, and then Christ comes. So light for the first time. Read John 1.1, right? Uh, the whole prelude to the book of the Gospel of John. That the light comes into the darkness, and that light was the light of men and the darkness couldn't comprehend it. So we're seeing the arrival again of the kingdom of God on the earth and it comes in the form of a man named Jesus who then dies on a cross to disarm the powers that kept humans in league with the darkness and kept the world itself in darkness. So then Jesus dies on a cross and in his death establishes victory over our own sin the world's systems and the demonic realm that governs the world's systems. So then here comes the entrance of light. And this is why Jesus comes and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. He doesn't mean one day you're going to go to heaven when you die. He means the kingdom of God is here and it is going to forcefully advance through the lives of those who submit their lives to Jesus. That will play out until, so watch the narrative. Kingdom of light on the earth humans fall, 
They become subject to the, to, to the demonic realm of the world. Darkness covers the face of the earth. Jesus arrives, light pierces the darkness, and then the light spreads until it covers the whole earth again, and that's the end of the book. Revelation 21 is when the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven and God dwells with his people on the earth again, right? So it's the renewal of the earth. It's the reclaiming of the earth. It's the reclaiming of the, of the good creation of God by the redeeming of the humans who were the stewards of the earth. So that's the narrative that's playing out, okay? So we've got to see Revelation in that story, not the story about us going to heaven and then some of us actually getting to do that before we die. Um, that's what that other idea of Revelation is locked up in. So, okay, so that's the grand narrative. Okay, take a step back. So then what, the, what is the book of Revelation about? It, last time y'all read the seven letters and you read about the throne room. What's going on then in the book of Revelation is something a little different than the rest of the New Testament. It's, it, if I could categorize in a simplistic and almost wrong way, but just a way of thinking, simplistic, it makes it sort of wrong, but it's pretty much right. Okay, let me get on with it. Um, most of what I see in the New Testament is about man's relationship to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and how the sin of men keeps them from that relationship, how that's been reconciled in Jesus, and then how man, though still sinful, should interact with the world, and then sometimes how the demonic interacts with our sin as well. So it's pretty much revolving around the human as the point of view, um, and the human's relationship to God, and the human's interaction with its own sin. And then what we're going to see in the book of Revelation, so if we see that the three enemies of God that sort of keep the darkness, the darkness are the flesh, the world, and the demonic realm. We talk about this all the time, the flesh, the world, and the demonic realm. If, if, the, if most of the New Testament is about the interaction of the flesh to the world and then a little bit about the flesh to the interaction with the demonic realm, the book of Revelation is a snapshot into the demonic realm's interaction with the world and how the demonic realm creates the world to be such a place that it draws us into it. You feel what I'm saying there a little bit? Did I lose anybody completely? We just need to redo that. Yeah, yeah okay, 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 okay. Um, we need to do this. We need to catch this. Uh, so instead of the, most of the New Testament being about what, how you should live a life of holiness towards God, how you should walk with Him and be with Him and reject sin, the book of Revelation is not so much about that, even though that's in there. It's much more about how... Our world, its political systems, its social systems, the norms that we live inside of this country that say what a woman should look like, what a man should look like, what you should do with your life. It's more about how the demonic realm actually creates these social systems and these political systems that keep humans locked up in oppression and then how our sinful tendencies want to play into that world. Think about how MTV has governed much of the way that you think and what you do. Just to be honest. I used to think that was crazy. And then I listened to this song that I really enjoy, and it goes, maybe MTV really is the devil after all. And it's like, yeah, maybe it is. Maybe it is. That's a dumb way of saying it, but you can see where I'm driving a little bit. It's much more a snapshot into this spiritual side of things. It's a revealing, a revelation of the way this power of darkness has created a world 
that draws us away from God. And it's a story about how Jesus, the, the, the uh, victorious, slain Lamb of God, died to reconcile us and then also resurrected to put an end to the rule of Satan on the earth and the demonic regimes that follow him. Does that make sense? We're going to jump in and I'm going to stop asking that question. But for the most part, I want us to grab a little bit of where we're going. So then let's jump in. And in light of everything I said, we're going to start in five where Joe ended. I'm going to read a little bit. And then I'm going to run through the book. Because I want you to get a big picture. Because the minute you start trying to dive in a little bit, your brain is going to go to try to decode. Like, what are the scorpions that have the lion's teeth? Are those helicopters? Maybe those are Apache helicopters. Okay, so when would this have... Okay, and, and so like, what's well, not what I want you to do because that's not what the book... The book is symbol. The book is symbol regarding spiritual truths to convey a larger encouraging message, not a code about the future. Okay? So just don't code. Okay? Just don't do it. Don't go into like, oh my God. Who is a Paul? Who's the Antichrist? Right? Okay, so we're just, we're not going to do that. Okay. Uh, throne room scene, jumping back in, Revelation 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look, it, look into it. What's the scroll? The scroll is the purposes of God, specifically not just everything he's going to do in creation, but rather it is the scroll regarding how God will tie up all of the darkness and the loose ends on this planet to bring about the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. So it's the bringing about of justice where we've never seen justice. It's the bringing and the reconciling of all of the wrongs done in the world for which we as humans look at and cry out and say we want justice administered. So we as humans have this thing in us that wants to see justice done right. We have this thing in us every time we watch a crime drama that if you leave before the five minutes when they tell you not just who did it but why they did it, that thing in you that says, no, 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 like we got to wait and see what happened here. Like have you ever tried to watch a crime drama and not find out who did it and why they did it? You will, you will literally not be able to sleep and you'll like go find on YouTube the, like those last five minutes. Like you cannot walk away from a crime drama where someone in that very beginning scene has been wrongfully accused or has had been raped or who has been um, murdered and they were a good person. And everything in you wants to know who did that, why did they do that, and what's going to happen to them. There's something in us that needs wrongs righted and rights rewarded. Like, we, we have that need. And so the scroll that this is referring to is the purposes of God, a just and right and good God who is going to bring about the culmination and the fixing of this planet. Because if he's good and he's powerful and he made this earth and it's really good, he's got to fix it. And we all know, even though we're blinded to it sometimes, that this, this earth is sort of jacked up. Right? Like, turn on the TV and you'll see it. Turn on 5 o'clock news, and you'll be like, man, get the, what's the NAC app? NAC 360? Yeah, yeah, and you'll, get, you'll just get texts about all the terrible things that happen in this small town. Just all throughout the day. It's wonderful. 
Um, okay, so the, so the scroll, in, in, in what's being referred to in here is the scroll is the playing out of the purpose of God on the earth. Why is it that no one can open the scroll? Why is that? Like, why doesn't just God play out the purposes of God on the earth? Why does he need this person to do it? Because, like we said at the beginning, the linchpin between heaven and earth, not because he had to do it, because he decided to do it, was humanity. So why is it that no one can open the scroll? Because every human has rejected God, walked away from him, and walked in iniquity and sin and unrighteousness. Therefore, there is no human that can play out the purposes of God on the earth. It was humans who in the beginning were created to play out the purposes of God on the earth. We all walked away, therefore no one can do it, therefore no one can set it right, so it seems as if it cannot be set right. And then in walks. I began to weep loudly. He's weeping loudly because he wants to see everything set right. Like John isn't like a scroll that can't be opened. Oh my gosh, I'm so distraught. He's like, no, the earth will not be fixed all of the wrongs won't be righted. All of my friends who have been killed for the name of Jesus are not going to be avenged. Like, this isn't right. This is wrong. So he's weeping loudly. This is a terrible thing. Okay. One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Why did Jesus have to become a human before he could die on a cross? Why doesn't Jesus just stroll, like, stroll down and just die on a cross? It has to be a human. Humans are the linchpin between heaven and earth. He has to become a human so that he can die on a cross. So that he, well, first he could live a righteous life, die on a cross for the sins of humanity, restore humanity, be the only good and right and faithful servant that humanity has ever seen, and therefore play out the purposes of God in the world. So then now the seals can be opened that lead to the reconciling of the creation, the setting right of all things, and so begins this crazy book we call Revelation. I'm not going to read too much. I'm just going to jump through, right? This is how the book is ordered. Jesus walks in and begins open the, he opens the seals. There are seven seals that hold the scroll together. Then there are seven trumpets that follow the seven seals being opened. And then later on, there will be seven bowls of wrath that are poured out on the earth. And each of these have a little bit of different meaning to them. And a lot of which I'm just, I'm just wrestling with. And so I want to say now, I'm going to hit a big general overview. If you came in here with questions about this book or you're just reading it now and you're like, what the heck does that mean? Um, when we get done, we're going to sit over here and if you have specific questions, I want you to bring them and we're going to talk through them. So right now we're doing general overview. If you do get a question that pops in your mind, write it down and we'll answer it over here after we're done. Okay, so seven seals that are on the scroll. Seven seals uh, basically are the totality of the wickedness on the earth that needs to be avenged. Okay, we'll just put it that way. Um, 
So first seal, uh, one of the creatures that's around the throne calls forth, and it's these four horsemen of the apocalypse. So seal one is um, this white horse with a crown. He's a conqueror. It symbolizes conquering rulers. Um, the next creature calls forth the second horse. He's a war-bringing red horse, the power of the sword to take away peace from the earth. So people come in and conquer. It leads to war, and it leads to a lack of peace on the earth. The next one is a black horse. It's a guy with these two scales, and then there's this statement about charge a bunch uh, of money for wheat, but don't charge too much money for oil and wine. It has a lot to do with when a conqueror comes and breaks down uh, peaceful um, socio-political systems. The next thing that happens is economic fatigue and economic breaking down where the poor people suffer and the rich people get richer. So it's the economic distress that plagues most of the world that we live in, just not really America and the West. That's what we mean, this economic plague that sort of, that, that sort of destroys um, burgeoning nations, third world nations. That's exactly what I mean, is the economic stress that makes the weak, the, the, the weak poorer and the poor people poorer and the rich people richer. Uh, and then the last one that comes on the seven seals is this pale horse and death and Hades follow with it. So the last thing that comes when humans do what humans do is death. Right. Next seal is these martyrs crying out for reconciliation. We've been killed for the name of Jesus. When are you going to set this right, God? God responds through an angel and says, it's going to be set right. Just be patient. It's going to be set right when the full number of martyrs has come in. When more and more and more people like going on right now in the Middle East are beheaded for the name of Jesus or crucified for the name of Jesus, that will be avenged when the fullness of those people has come in and all of the playing out of evil has begun to take place and Jesus comes in at the right time to do what needs to be done when everything has sort of been flushed out. So the seals are in reference to the flushing out of the evil of this planet. Okay, that's enough. Six seal happens... And then every time, whether it's the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls, there, is, there are six of them. Then there's a break in the narrative that talks about the victory of God and him gathering nations to himself. And then there's the seventh one. So then the seventh seal happens. The seventh seal commences. The seven trumpets. The seven trumpets are these ones in here about um, terrible things happening on the earth. And for some reason, every single one of them brings about a third of the destruction of something. Okay, so you're drawing meaning from that, right? So then these seven trumpets are blown in heaven. Um, the first one brings hail and fire and blood, and a third of the earth is burned, a third of the trees are burned, and all the grass is burned. Uh, the next trumpet brings uh, a burning mountain into the sea. So a mountain that's on fire falls into the sea. A third of the sea is turned to blood, a third of the sea animals die, and a third of the ships in the sea are destroyed. Next trumpet's blown, and a star called Wormwood falls and hits rivers and clear water and springs, drinking water basically, and a third of the rivers on the earth become bitter. Um, and then the fourth, um, all a third of the heavenly bodies are struck. So a third of the stars, a third of the moon, and a third of the sun go dark. And then an eagle, this is crazy, all right, <laughs> this is crazy. I've been turned on like Daystar, the, uh, you know Daystar is? This is like pretty terrible like Christian TV programming. And it was a guy just like reading and preaching through Revelations. And I was like, oh man, this is going to be me. I don't want this to be me. Anyway, here we go. An eagle flies, whoa, whoa, whoa to the earth for the next three trumpets are going to be really freaking bad. 
and then the first woe, which is this is getting, the first woe, which is the fifth trumpet. A star falls and it releases this thing from the pit. And it releases these scorpions that have, it's these locusts that are scorpion with like lion's teeth. And they basically just torment the earth for five months. Not so bad. Second woe, the angels of the Euphrates uh, release a fearsome army of 10,000 times 10,000 times two. And then these horsemen that are make up this army, they again have lion's teeth and these crazy things and they torment the earth. What we're seeing in all of this is a symbolic language referring to all the one, not all of, but referring to many of the plagues of Egypt. Water turning to blood, um, the sky being darkened. So it's this return to Egypt where we're remembering the plagues that happened in Egypt which for the, were for the freeing of the Israelites. The Israelites get free. They're set free from captivity. They're set free from bondage. And all of this one-third language, one-third language, one-third language, all of this is about saying this is not the wrath of God punishing the earth. This is the shaking of the earth to wake people up so that they might repent and turn back to God. So the language of the trumpets is not wrath of God. It's rather judgment upon the systems that govern the earth so that these systems might be rattled and people might repent and turn away from their following in line with the world back to God. And what we see at the end of the six trumpets is that no one does that. And you're like, why? Okay, this is what we get to story of these two witnesses. It's these two people that do crazy things and these two people do crazy things and then they're killed and three and a half days later they rise again and after that a large number of people actually start following the Lord. What we're seeing locked up in there is this symbol and this is really where we're going to grab some meaning and we're going to jump to the next part. These two witnesses, these embody the church. These are symbols that embody those people who have followed Jesus, those people that have decided not to ask Jesus in their heart to, so they can go to heaven, but rather to submit to him and his way of life and his kingdom so that they can see the kingdom of light take over the earth and not partake in the kingdom of darkness any longer. So it is the church going forward in what we see in the spirit of Moses and the spirit of Elijah. Spirit of Moses, spirit of Elijah being this. Moses and Elijah are the two Old Testament figures. They're the two Old Testament figures that represent the nation of Israel by speaking to powerful socio-political systems, telling them that they are indeed not the God of the world that someone else, Yahweh was God, speak out against them and see them crumble before him. So Moses speaks out against Egypt and it leads to the freeing of the Israelites. Elijah is this other huge figure in the, light, uh, in the Old Testament who speaks out against uh, this woman named Jezebel who had, was turning Israel into um, a pagan nation, basically, leading them to worship Baal. Remember, Elijah is the one that puts an altar... Um, dig some trenches around it and then the prophets of Baal they build an altar 
And then uh, Elijah is like, you pray to your God and see if fire comes out of heaven, and I'll pray to my God and see if fire comes out of heaven. They both pray. Nothing happens for uh, the worshipers of Baal, but then Elijah has them soak the sacrifice in water, and then he prays and fire consumes it, and then he's crazy, so he like takes a sword and he kills all the prophets of Baal because he got excited or something. Uh, <laughs> he's like, I was right! And he goes and kills them, and then Jezebel, who sort of put them in power, and they kept her in power, she sends this army to kill Elijah, and Elijah goes running. Two huge figures in the Old Testament who become the focal point of what it looks like to be the people of God and speak out against socio-political regimes that are in line with the demonic realm to take the world in the way that it shouldn't go. They are forerunners of Jesus. So look at the life of Jesus. It's exactly what he did. It's exactly what he did. But it's not in his storming the gates of Rome that he conquers, but rather in his death. And so we get this paradigm. And this is the paradigm that I think we need to draw out of the entire book of Revelation. It's this. If you go back to the seven letters to the seven churches at the beginning and you trace this through, what you're going to see is this. That John is telling his people, he's telling his people, you need to stand firm in the testimony of Jesus that He is Lord. Not that He's Savior and is going to take you to heaven, but rather that He is Lord. He is the one who has come, who has conquered all of the enemies of the earth and of man. He has conquered all of the enemies of God. He now stands above all of creation as Lord. Hold to the testimony of Jesus as Lord. Not that Caesar is Lord, but rather that Jesus is Lord. Hold to that testimony. It is going to bring persecution to you. You might need to hold on to that testimony even when that persecution leads to death. Patiently endure is the words over and over and over in this book. You have two options as a Christian. Hold to the testimony of Jesus as Lord. It will bring persecution and even persecution unto death. Or the other option. You collude with and collaborate with the forces of darkness that are creating the world that they want to make that is in opposition to humanity and in opposition to God and you can collude with them and collaborate with them and it will bring comfort and it will bring a way out of the persecution. So if you look at the seven letters, this is what the seven letters are about. They are letters to seven different churches regarding various degrees of collaboration with forces of darkness rather than forces of light. Some don't collaborate at all and they're commended. Some collaborate a little bit and the Lord responds to that. Others, like the last one, Laodicea, that y'all looked at, collaborate fully. They seek comfort. They love their wealth and they are willing to bend on the testimony regarding Jesus as Lord so that they can have the life that they want. The point of this book is this. You have two choices. To collaborate with the systems that Jesus died to disarm and is coming to destroy or hold fast to the testimony of Jesus when it gets difficult and it might even get difficult unto death. 
patiently endure. And so what we're seeing locked up in this is the struggle between these two things. It's the struggle between these two things. So the seals are all the things that need to be set right. The trumpets are the shaking of the earthly systems to wake people up. The witnesses are the testimony of the church who then die. They hold fast to the testimony about Jesus even unto death. They are brought back to life. They are vindicated publicly. And this is what brings about the repentance of many from all nations is the witness of its people witnessing the church standing outside of the world, not collaborating with the world, and being put to death for it. And so what we see is it's not the judgment of the trumpets, but rather the testimony of the church and their testimony unto death that brings about the gathering of the nations. So this is what we see. And then the final trumpet is blown. And this is where I want to read and we'll keep going. The final trumpet's blown, the seven trumpets, and this is what happens then. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So it's the final bringing in. Does that make sense? Apparently this is actually written over Westminster Abbey, which is one of the oldest, most famous, biggest churches uh, in Western Europe. Right? Listen to how beautiful that is. The seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world, the kingdom of darkness that governed the world has been overthrown and it's become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders representing the apostles and, uh, and, and, and the, elders of the, church of Israel, uh, the elders of Israel sit on their thrones. They before God fall on their faces and worship God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and, and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came from the, uh, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. That last phrase is where we need to go. The nations raged, but your wrath came. The seven trumpets and the seventh trumpet is now this final playing out in this story. It is the destroying of the destroyers. One was this highlighting of what needs to be dealt with and who is the only one that can deal with it? Jesus. The trumpets then is the judging of the earth and the shaking of the earth to rattle it loose, bring about repentance. It doesn't, never has. The testimony of the saints do. Then this last, last seventh trumpet is the pouring out of the wrath of God on the earth to destroy those powers of darkness and those who collude with the powers of darkness so that the earth can finally be made right once again. This is the nasty part. There's no one-third language. It's all complete language. So, this is what the final portion of the book of Revelation is about the pouring out of the seven bowls of wrath. 
this is the part that we read and we're like, man, God's a little crazy. Does he really have to do this? And I think we take sin and collaboration with the world so loosely and shallowly and small that when God says this world has gone down a path, humans allowed it to go down that path, I've died so that I can redeem humans so that it will stop going down that path, and now it comes time to clean house and deal with everything that's been done wrong, we look at that and feel like, oh, isn't that harsh? And the reason we feel like, oh, isn't that harsh is because in our hearts and probably in most of our lives, we are much like the Laodicean church because we're in the West. We're much like that church that has collaborated and collaborated and collaborated with the forces of darkness that Jesus is coming to do away with and so when we hear about the doing away with it, we're sort of like, oh, it's a little strong. And if we were those people, or friends with those people that were beheaded by ISIS last week, I think we would look at the return of Jesus and the pouring out of his wrath as something necessary and beautiful that needs to happen so that this world can become what it was always meant to be and not the dark place that we've allowed it to become. So because we are much like the church of Laodicea, it's harsh. And if we were more like the church in, I think, Smyrna or even Ephesus, I think we'd look at that and say, come, Lord Jesus, let's, let's get down to business. This is going to be crazy, but this stuff has to happen. So those last bowls are the pouring out of his wrath to set things right. And so I want to sort of highlight something that the text highlights, and I'm not going to go into too deep. I don't want to unpack the symbolism. We can do it over here if you want. That closing statement closes out the first half of the book and then begins the second half of the book. And the second half of the book is really the highlighting of the relationship between Satan and the demonic realm and then worldly forces and worldly socio-political powers. Namely, Rome and how Satan has interacted with Rome, with Babylon, how the Satan has interacted with very strong socio-political powers to oppose the people of God and to oppose God in this world. And so what we see in there is, when I say collusion, when I say collaboration, do y'all know what I mean when I say that? Sort of? I'll put it this way. We'll just unpack it for a second. What we see in the beginning of 12 and the playing out of this narrative from 12 to the end of the book is this. There's this figure that's a dragon and this dragon seems to be, and what they say exactly is this, this ancient serpent, the devil, and Satan is now opposing God and opposing what God is doing in the world and what he does to oppose the people of God to one, he tries to oppose Jesus and can't get to Jesus because Jesus ascends to heaven. He can't get to Jesus, but he can get to Jesus' followers. How does he go about getting to Jesus' followers? What he does is he creates a socio-political system during the first century in Rome, and what we see is it is a system that is based on um, power for power's sake, pleasure for pleasure's sake, uh, relationships for the sake of sex, 
money for the sake of what it can get me, right? It's so, so what's locked up in the systems, not just in the Roman system, but in every system that we've seen in mankind. I'll put it this way. Um, last week, I sent a couple text messages to my interns, and I'd just like to play games with them a little bit, but I was asking them, what is it in every single culture that you see being powerful and valuable to men and women? What is it? A couple things. Throw something out. What do we see in every single culture that people want and they're willing to die for? Money, power, and sex. Those are the first three answers they said. And the girl said relationships, but yeah. <laughs> but that's part of it. Why is it in every single culture in the history of humanity that money, power, and sex are the things that humans are willing to do anything for? It's because locked up in the human core, in the human nature, is dependency. And we're dependent creatures. We need to be satisfied, we need to be secure, and we need to be significant. Some of those to varying, de varying degrees depending on who you are. I want satisfaction more than I want significance and security, and I want security the least. My wife wants security first. That's why she doesn't want me to spend money fulfilling my satisfaction, right? So we've got this terrible mix. She needs security more, satisfaction the least, and significance a little bit. All of us are wired a little different to need one more than the other, but all of us need one of those three really, really badly. And we were created this way, dependent, to find dependency in God, to find our satisfaction in Him first, and then in the creation, in the way that He made the creation to be, and then to find security in Him and significance in Him, to find our value and our identity in Him, that I am valuable because I am a son of God who has been bought by the blood of Jesus and been made in the image of God. I am not significant because... I have money and drive a certain car or I have a certain job or whatever. Whatever way I would use creation to make me significant. Right? So I'm dependent. I need these things. But every culture and every system in history has found a way to program humans to find those things inside of that system and then create power structures that you can find those things. So you can find satisfaction if you just get enough money to buy the things that you want. You can find significance if you can find the right relationship or the right social status or the right political status so that you feel important to the world. You can find security if you can amass enough wealth so that if something happens to you, you're not scared because you've got money to cover it. So what, when, when I say systems, that's exactly what I mean. The world systems work in such a way to feed into your need for satisfaction, security, and significance. They feed into it so that you will find them in the system rather than in God. And so let's break this down one more step. We'll break it down one more step. This plays itself out in cultural narratives that we all live in. Um, what is the path to satisfaction, security, and significance in America? It's this. Do well in high school so that you can get to college. And when you get to college, do pretty well so that when you graduate, you can find a job. And make sure you go to a city that has a high degree of opportunity so that when you get to that city, you can capitalize on that opportunity so that you can make the money that you need to make. And make sure before you get there, you get into a relationship that is going to make you feel valuable. It makes you feel wanted. It makes you feel important. It makes you feel loved. And that you can get some sex out of it too. So get a relationship. Then go find some opportunity somewhere where you can get some money so that 
that you can buy what you want when you want to buy it. And when you've done that, be smart, though. Don't be an idiot. Be smart and put about, uh, let's say, 6% away, and then maybe your employer can match you another 6% so that you get a nest egg. So you work really hard. You focus on your nuclear family that entire time. Maybe you have kids, but now the cultural narrative says, no, don't really have kids because that's going to get in the middle of the fun that you might be able to have. Okay, so keep as much money as you can. Keep as much money as you can because when you retire, you need to make sure that you can do whatever you want when you don't have to work anymore. And then you're going to die. But at least you will have been satisfied in your money, secure in your money, and significant in your place in society when you get there. So that's the cultural narrative. And that narrative was given to us. That narrative was given to us. If you're in Rome, it's a different narrative. If you're in Italy, it's a different. I mean, no, it doesn't matter where you are. There is a narrative that says this is how you do well in life. This is how you find satisfaction, how you find security, how, how you find significance. And so what the book of Revelation is saying, that system that you live in, that cultural narrative that you think is going to satisfy and bring importance to your life, that system is created by a demonic realm that really wants to minimize your impact in the advance of the kingdom of life and really destroy you if it can and really just bring you but if it can't destroy you it just want to make you kind of useless along the way and so you have one choice hold to the testimony of Jesus or collaborate with the system that's actually demonic until you walk along into death and find out that what was going on the whole time was you just being a pawn in a bigger game than you ever knew was happening Marshall So when I say collaboration, that's what I mean. I mean, we believe that Jesus died on a cross not to take us to heaven, but to bring about the end of world systems that have taken this world down a dark, dark path. And what most of us will do is say, thank you for your blood, Jesus. I'm glad it's going to get me to heaven. I'm glad about that but I'd really like to just bend along the way. I'd just like, it's comfortable. It's collaboration. It's collusion. So while the book of Revelation is sometimes difficult to understand and a little bit crazy, it's bringing to light something that we are a bit blinded to. The fact that the systems that we live in are really engineered to rob us of life in the Lord and rob us of vitality and our own humanity to not be the image bearers of God who steward the earth down the path it's supposed to go, but rather pawns in a game where we feel a little satisfied, a little secure, and a little significant. So that's the point of the book. And it closes with this beautiful, beautiful statement. We're just going to do 19. I think y'all have heard 21 enough. We'll hit 19. Uh, 11. The bowls of wrath are poured out. And the purpose of these is Jesus is dealing with the demonic realm that has engineered these systems. He's destroying the destroyers like we saw in the seventh trumpet. He's destroying the destroyers. When he's done destroying the destroyers, the sad part about this is the demonic realm is going to be dismantled 
wrath is going to be poured out on the systems themselves, on the demonic realm that created those systems, and then sadly, the humans that collude with those systems, that collaborate with those systems. The wrath of God is poured out. And then, 19, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his, on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus comes once and in the same fashion that he's calling us, the church, to walk in, he secures victory through suffering. There will come a day when he finishes that victory and it won't be through suffering that time. It will be by him playing the role that only he can play. The final bringer of justice, the final judge upon the earth, the final one who sets all things right and he has the right to do it because he died for humanity so that he might reconcile those who want to be reconciled. I'm going to close with this. The story that we've heard about Jesus is easy to swallow. The one growing up where you ask him in your heart and you go to heaven when you die. This story that the Bible paints is a much clearer line in the sand. Will you follow him wherever he leads and resist collaboration with the kingdom that he came to destroy? Or will you collaborate and find your comfort there? It's a different story, man. It's a different story. And he's calling you to one and it might be painful and it might be difficult and you might miss opportunity along the way and you might miss out on a little cash and you might miss out on a little sex. But he's calling for the renewal of all things and what we're seeing throughout the book of Revelation, it's not that God does it and we sit back and watch. It's that we actually play a role in the renewal as the stewards of the earth. As the stewards of the earth playing this role in creation that we were always meant to play, but finally being able to do it fully and well because everything that separated us from that relationship is taken away completely. As his wrath is poured out and justice comes and the king reigns. It's not like this easy thing to swallow. I'm not expecting you to be like, oh, that's obviously true. I'm saying it's a difficult thing to swallow. Count the cost. And let's walk that direction if you want. I've tried the other way, and it's nice for like three years. And then it sucked for a little bit longer than that. And if you want to go a different direction, let's go that direction. And I don't know what it looks like for you. I don't know what you let go of. 
all I know is that the Holy Spirit makes it clear when you're ready to let go of it. And if you just submit yourself to Him and say, what is it? How do I collaborate? Where am I going? What am I doing? I want to walk with you in the way you want me to walk. Let's go. Let's do this and stop playing games. He's faithful and true. He's not there to trick you. But it's also a line in the sand and you've got to cross it. And we're done with Revelation.